don't ever forget, if you're a Christian, right now, you are at war with an invisible army of spiritual forces. And whether you think you are or not, the Bible says they're at war with you. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Though it may not always feel like it, did you know there's a silent, invisible war being waged all around you? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new 16-part series titled Learning to Use God's Armor. We'll be in the book of Ephesians, looking at one of the most quoted passages in all of the New Testament, a passage that's often referred to as the believer's armor. You'll discover that there is a silent, invisible war being waged. It's a war between God and Satan. It's a war waged by supernatural beings. And if you're a Christian, it's not your soul that's at stake. Instead, it's your spiritual health, growth, and effectiveness as a follower of Jesus. And Tom, there's a lot of bad information out there about the subject of spiritual warfare. So what can we expect to learn throughout this series? Sadly, there is so much misinformation and wrong teaching about this issue. But what we're going to discover together is that our spiritual armor is profoundly helpful and that that armor is really what we understand about the truths of the gospel. And as we understand those truths more deeply, our understanding, our knowledge, our certainty of those things, in fact, becomes the spiritual armor that we need to survive the battle that we are locked in every day. We are in a battle, and we can win that battle using the armor that our God has provided for us. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now for more on The Word Unleashed. Every year, cancer causes about 13% of all human deaths. That means in 2007, for example, 7.6 million people died worldwide of cancer. But what exactly is cancer? Of course, it takes many different forms and attacks many different parts of the body. But cancer, in its heart, is one particular aberration. Wikipedia defines cancer in this way. It is a class of diseases in which a group of cells display uncontrolled growth, that is division beyond normal limits, invasion, that is intrusion and destruction of adjacent tissues, and sometimes metastasis. In other words, it, it spreads to other parts of the body via the lymph system or the blood. How does that happen? How do a group of cells go on such a rampage? Well, Wikipedia goes on to describe the process like this. Cancer-promoting oncogenes are typically activated in those cancer cells, giving those cells new properties, such as excuse me, hyperactive growth, protection against the normal death-programmed death cycle of cells, and a loss of respect for normal tissue boundaries. In addition to that, the article goes on to say, tumor suppressor genes are inactivated in those cancer cells. 
resulting in the loss of the normal function of the cell. You see, that's what makes cancer so deadly, is the very genes that are intended to prevent tumors from growing are switched off so that the protective cells in our immune system often fail to recognize the cancer as an enemy until it's too late. As a result, even though there is an all-out war being waged against the healthy cells in our body, our immune system is completely unaware. And we too are consciously unaware until either we feel the tumor or we begin to experience the symptoms. Fortunately, with the information that's available today, we are more aware than past generations were about the danger of cancer. And because of that awareness, we take more steps to guard and protect our bodies. We're aware that there's this silent, invisible war that may very well be raging within our bodies. And so we take steps to guard against that. We slather on sunscreen and we wear hats. We perform self-examinations of various kinds. We get routine checkups and cancer screenings. And all of that's very important for the protection of the body. But as Christians, we need to understand that there is a silent, invisible war being waged all around us and even inside our very minds, a war that is much more serious in its consequences than any cancer could be. And tragically, most Christians are completely oblivious to the reality of this war. Today, we come in our study of the book of Ephesians to one of the most famous, one of the most often quoted passages in all of the New Testament. A passage that's often referred to as the believer's armor. What Paul wants us to see in this passage above all else is that all around us, and even within our minds, there is a silent, invisible war being waged. It's a war between God and Satan. It's waged by supernatural beings. And it's not your body at stake, it's your soul. And if you're a Christian, ultimately it's not your soul that's at stake. Instead, it is your spiritual health and growth and effectiveness in this life. That's the message of Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Let me read this paragraph for you. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, 
With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, as we begin this last major paragraph of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, I think it's important for us to remember where we are. I don't want you to get lost inside of the forest for the trees. Let me remind you that the theme of this great letter of Paul's is God's eternal plan. In the first three chapters, he explains that plan And in the last three chapters, he applies that plan. The first three chapters are about what you and I need to know. Chapters 4 through 6, about what we need to do in response to what we have learned. Chapters 1 through 3 state our position. Chapters 4 through 6, what our practice should be. In the first three chapters, there's only one command. It comes in chapter 2, verse 11, and it's remember. Beginning in chapter 4 and running through the end of the book, Paul repeatedly gives us command after command and reminds us of the implications of our incredible position in Christ. Notice chapter 4, verse 1, just to remind you. He begins the second half of the letter with this hinge verse, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I plead with you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Walk worthy of your calling, worthy of that new position that I've just explained to you in the first three chapters. But how do we do that? Well, as chapters 4 through 6 unfold, Paul has explained to us how to walk worthy. Again, just to remind you of the journey we've been on through this book, Let me remind you of how we walk worthy. In chapter 4, verses 2 through 16, we walk worthy by walking in unity. In chapter 4, verse 17, down through verse 24, we walk worthy by walking in new life, the new life we've been given in Christ. In chapter 4, verse 25, down through chapter 5, verse 2, we walk in love. In chapter 5, verse 3, down through verse 14, we're to walk in sexual purity. And then the last section that we've just finished, we are to walk in biblical wisdom. That's the longest section of the entire letter. It begins in chapter 5, verse 15, and runs all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. Walk in biblical wisdom. If you're going to walk worthy... Now, when that section ends, in verse 9 of chapter 6, we are beginning to conclude the letter. Paul begins this final section, you'll notice in verse 10, with the word, finally. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Paul has come to the final issue in the list of matters that he wants to address. What follows the word finally in this case is not merely another item in a series of lists or in a list of subjects, but instead what follows that word is a practical exhortation in light of all he has taught us. 
It is the practical application that equips us to do everything He's commanded us to do in this letter. You know, I think for most Christians, when they get to this part of the book of Ephesians, they're just tempted to skip it. They're tempted to skip it because, frankly, it just seems too militaristic, too disengaged from their life, frankly, just not that practical at all. And so what do they do? They go back and read the real practical commands about the kind of marriage you ought to have, the kind of parenting you ought to do, and then they set out to fulfill those commands. And they ignore the very practical means Paul gives us for carrying out those commands about unity and about new life and about love and about sexual purity and about biblical wisdom in all the relationships of life. Let's just be honest. A lot of Christians treat this paragraph as if it were some kind of legalese at the end of a commercial. It has to be said but you don't have to listen. I don't know what it means, but that's okay. It's just one of those things that needs to be said. Paul has to say it. It's not very helpful, but there it is. Let's move on. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The truth is, when it comes to living out the commands Paul has given us in the second half of this letter, what he explains in these verses is the only way to do it successfully. You want to be a better husband, a better wife? You want to be a better child, a better parent? You want to be a better employer, an employee? You want to overcome those habits that are a part of your life? You will never do it unless you understand this section of Ephesians. Now today... We aren't going to begin our verse-by-verse study of this paragraph. Lord willing, we'll do that next week. But today what I want to do is make some general observations that will help us together see why this section is so important. You see, contained within these verses are several concepts that are absolutely crucial to understand if you're going to live a life of faith and a life of obedience to Christ. Because Paul had lived with these people for close to three years and had served as their pastor, they already knew those foundational truths. And so he just jumps into the metaphor. But to help bring us up to speed before we begin to work our way through this passage, I want you to see, I want to sort of uncover the foundational concepts or ideas that underlie this entire passage. So let's look at them together. Those foundational concepts that you need to understand if you're going to understand this passage, and you must understand this passage and apply it to live out the commands that we've studied in the rest of the book. The first concept on which Paul builds this passage is this. Number one, the Christian life is war. The Christian life is war. Every moment of our Christian lives, we are locked in a life and death struggle with unseen spiritual forces. Now, that hasn't always been true. It wasn't true before we were Christians. In fact, before we became Christians, before we repented and believed in Christ alone as our Lord and our Savior, we were in perfect lockstep with those forces. Look back in chapter 2. 
You remember how Paul described us before we came to Christ? Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead to God. You were spiritually dead in your trespasses, in your acts of rebellion, and in your individual sins in which you formerly walked. And as you walked through this world, your, your lifestyle was according to, that is, in lockstep with the mindset of the age in which we lived. In lockstep, notice the second half of verse 2, with the prince of the power of the air, the prince of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He's talking about Satan. We studied that together. He says, before you were a Christian, before I was a Christian, we were in lockstep with our prince, our king, and he was none other than Satan himself. But not only was he our prince and our king, our ruler, he was also our father. So many passages in the New Testament make this clear, but 1 John 3 comes to mind. Verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. He goes on to say in verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Everybody here this morning falls into one of those categories. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. There's no neutrality. And he says, anyone who does not practice righteousness as a habit of life is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So there are those and we were certainly described this way. We were children of the devil. So he was our prince, our ruler, our king, and our father. But now things have changed. As Paul says in Colossians 1.13, For he, that is God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So we changed kingdoms. At the moment you came to Christ, you changed kingdoms, you changed kings, and you changed fathers. As Ephesians 1 makes it clear, every believer has been adopted by God. There was a radical change that took place. So our entire relationship to our previous ruler and king and father has changed. Whereas before we were in lockstep with him, now we are at war with him. You see this change take place in Ephesians. Here in verse 2 of chapter 2, we were in lockstep with Satan. We were dead in sin. But go over to verse 27 of chapter 4, and now that we're in Christ, the devil is looking for an opportunity in our anger to trip us up, to make us fall, to attack us even through our anger. Go over to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. And there you see the devil is scheming. We'll talk more about that next week. The devil is scheming against us. And in fact, down in verse 16, he's launching various flaming arrows at us in order to destroy our souls. Things have changed. You are now in a war. Before you were at war with God, Romans 5 makes that clear, and now we're at peace with God, and now we're at war with God's enemy who was once our prince and our ruler and our father. Don't ever forget, if you're a Christian right now, 
Right now, you are at war with an invisible army of spiritual forces. And whether you think you are or not, the Bible says they're at war with you. So get used to that idea. There's a second concept that weaves its way through this passage that's foundational to our understanding this and exegeting this passage. Number two, we are in this war together. We are in this war together. In the original language, the verbs and pronouns throughout this paragraph are plural, addressed to all the Christians in the Ephesian church. Now, obviously, the commands have to be obeyed individually. Every Christian has to obey this command. You have to put on your own armor, whatever that means, and we'll talk about what that means in the coming weeks. No one else can put it on for you. But here's where Christians often go astray. Because I have to put on my own armor, and because I have my own temptations and my own individual struggles to fight, it's easy if I'm not careful to start to think that the war is really between me and Satan. But that's to miss the whole point of the metaphor that Paul is using here of a soldier. Folks, there is no such thing as a war in the real sense of that word between two people. To have a war, you have to have nations and kingdoms and kings. So the picture here is not of an individual soldier fighting a lone battle against spiritual forces. Rather, the picture here is of each of us being a soldier and together our being in the same army. We are a band of brothers. That reference, of course, is to Stephen Ambrose's book, his true account of the soldiers in the 101st Airborne. He called them a band of brothers. That those men survived the horrors of World War II, but also achieved victory there is a tribute to their training. It's a tribute to their toughness. But most of all, it's a tribute to their devotion to one another. They were a band of brothers. Ambrose borrows that title, that line, from a Shakespearean play, Henry V. You're probably familiar, if you've studied any Shakespeare at all, with that famous speech. It was on St. Crispin's Day. Henry Plantagenet makes this battlefield speech to his outnumbered, beleaguered men, sure to lose. This is what he said. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when the day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin's day. This story shall the good man teach his son and Crispin, Crispian shall never go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. That's the spirit behind this passage. God wants us to understand that we are partners in war. We are fellow soldiers. We battle a common enemy together. Lose that mindset and you are sure to lose the war. 
to lose the battle. Because Satan loves nothing better than to get a Christian alone. Because alone, we're more vulnerable and we're open to attack and defeat. The point of this metaphor is we need each other. We're in the fight together. There's a third foundational concept in this passage that you really have to grasp to get this passage. Thirdly, the war is between God and Satan. The war is between God and Satan. Understand this, Christian, the war in which we are engaged is bigger than our personal sins and struggles. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, Learning to Use God's Armor. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.